Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church podcast. My name is Ryan Cagno. The HBIC podcast brings you weekly episodes on the topic of discipleship, where we'll sit down with members of the HBIC family to hear their stories, hear about the different ways people at HBIC are pursuing discipleship, in other words, how they are learning to follow Jesus' example and obey his teachings in their daily lives in practical ways. This week I talked with Bob and Jennifer Aronson about their life, their history with the evangelical church, the non-denominational church, some of the struggles and lessons learned as they've gone through that. Uh, I think many of us have a history with evangelicalism. Um, whether or not we've been in evangelical churches it's or think we have, it's kind of just in the air in our culture. So I think hearing their journey will be really helpful and really interesting. Enjoy. Bob and Jennifer Aronson, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Mr. Ryan. <laughs> uh, you guys have been at HBIC for a little over two years, so 2021, and you've right. been, you dove into the deep end pretty right away. We really uh, did. <laughs> yeah, I know that Bob was one of the first people that my wife met when we started coming here in 2021, and so in the Dear White Peacemakers group. Um, right. You know, a lot of times it's been very difficult finding a church, and we found this church online. And uh, when I turned on the service, the first song was one that our daughter had co-written. And we <laughs> and thought, like, if this church knows this song, they yeah. have to have been exposed to some of the thinking behind this song. And so it was uh, really uh, astounding, first of all, that we heard that song. And then it was like, hey, this is very intriguing. Yeah. yeah. And so close to where we live. Yeah. Yeah, uh, to be involved. I, I played here for the first time in August of 2021 when we were still outside in the in the fenced-in lot, and we played The Earth Shall Know. Um, and I'd never heard it before, so that was the first time I'd played it. But that's the song your daughter mm-hmm. wrote, yeah. right? Yeah, that's so, the one. Um, yeah, so you guys moved here from Indiana, and Bob, you're working at uh, Elizabethtown College right now. Um, why don't you kind of lay out some of your journey and, and story and, and whatever road markers you think would be good to stop and, and talk about on the way of that. Right. When you asked us um, to be a part of the podcast and, and we thought of what might be of interest to the, the broader audience and uh, one thing that came up was just sharing our story. Um, we've been married 40 years and have spent a lot of time in evangelical circles and have learned a lot from that experience, good and bad, and thought we could share that. Yeah, and I actually grew up in a Roman Catholic home, and I came to Christ in high school through the work of a small Bible church that later became an evangelical free church. But uh, my, uh, my growth has been in the context of predominantly evangelical churches and many non-denominational churches. Yeah, and I too did not grow up in the evangelical world. We, uh, my family lived abroad in Chile and Greece and Uganda, and you just took whatever English-speaking church was available. Uh, so, you know, in Uganda it was Anglican and not particularly evangelical. So that really wasn't um, necessarily the tradition that we started with. And then uh, when my family returned to the U.S., we settled in the Wheaton, Illinois area, which really was the bastion of evangelicalism um, until it moved in the 90s to Colorado Springs. So that became 
a big part. Um, Did you, were either of you Wheaties? What do we call them? Yeah, we, that's, that's where we is go that first is that we both attended Wheaton College, uh, which is non-denominational but evangelical in nature. Um, yeah, I learned about Wheaton College from uh, a college student who was working as our youth pastor. Uh, I lived about 10 miles from Wheaton. I knew nothing about Wheaton College until I got to know her, and she uh, was an early mentor to me and also brought me on campus, and I fell in love with the campus. That's how I ended up there. My parents were not thrilled about it, but... Uh, they didn't have to worry because they didn't have any money to pay me to go to school, so I had to do it myself. Not thrilled because they were still Roman Catholic? or Yeah, and my dad just thought, well, you've been accepted to University of Illinois, and you want to have a, a, an amazing career where you can make a lot of money, and that's what he was thinking. Yeah, all that's money. And I was going to a school that was going to cost a lot of money, and I'd have debt, and who knows if I would get a good job. He had no context, really, to understand Wheaton College. But but once you told him that it was the Harvard of evangelicalism. <laughs> All better. Yeah. No, just kidding. <laughs> so while we were at Wheaton, I think that um, the programs that we were in, we had a leaning toward the more progressive and international understanding and justice side of things. Um, I remember my grandfather, who a very good conservative, saying, "Wait a minute! Don't your professors have? Don't they have to be Christians to teach at Wheaton?" And I said, "Well, yes." He says, "But you just said one was a Democrat. Like it was incongruent that you could be those things together." So it was interesting, but that was definitely, um, you know, where our thinking began and our passion for. Um, being cross-cultural learners and concerned with systems. I was a bit behind Jennifer in thinking about these things. And uh, I actually came in thinking I was going to go into medicine. I was going to be chemistry, pre-med. And it didn't take me but, well, a year and three quarters to figure out, no, that's not a good idea. Um, but that's also when I started getting introduced to the issues that we see on a daily basis in our society and why they're happening and, and who are they happening to. And so I switched from chemistry to sociology. I might have had something to do with that too since we met in a sociology class and he basically chose my father's career. So Okay, uh -huh. bye. <laughs> so in, in the early years after, after Wheaton, um, church shopping was hard. This was before you could go online and look up their statement of faith. And um, and if you're w picking a non-denominational place, they have funny names. You know, they might be New Life or Living Water. And is, is this going to be Pentecostal? Is this going to be Church of God? Is this going to be something uncomfortable? Or, or is it just evangelical? Um, so that got interesting. Sometimes we call it some church shopping, so mm. to speak. Shout out Living Water Community Church a mile down the road. <laughs> right. You just didn't really know until then, you know, until you could look up and say, oh, they're associated with Willow Creek or, you know, whatever. Um, but that, um, and talk about your first job. 
Oh yeah, my first job out of college. Uh, we, I, we got married right after I graduated, and I got a job at the National Association of Evangelicals. Oh, and wow. I, yeah. oh I was thinking your first job after that. No, my first job, and, and I say oh, yeah. that it was at the NAE that I became radicalized. <laughs> well, That'll do it. As explanation, he was in the mail room where he got to hear everybody's story and complaints and know what was really going on and just listened. So that was interesting. Yeah, it took away all my uh, kind of fan fanciful ideas about what it was like to be working at a Christian organization. And so, um, yeah. I understand. You know, closer you get to the fire, the yeah, the more of that heat you feel. Um, I understand. Yeah. yeah. And it's really interesting, too, because, you know, in college, I started thinking about things I had never thought about before. And I was exposed to thinking like, oh, there was this writing done by Carl F.H. Henry, the uneasy conscience of the modern fundamentalism. And I'm like, gosh. Uh, at the time, evangelical was really standing in sharp contrast to fundamentalism, and it, you know, embraced the scripture and em embraced kind of the uh, personal piety and the transformation that can take place within individuals based on the gospel. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, it, you know, Wheaton exposed us to speakers from the global south, which really had an impact on the way both of us thought, I think. Yeah, it's hard to understate the difference, you know, when we say evangelical and the connotation that that has today in 2023 versus, you know, evangelicalism in the 60s, 70s. Uh, and er I don't know. I wouldn't say earlier than that because you guys aren't that um well seasoned, but the, you know the fifties as well. Like yeah, you know, we were there in the seventies, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies. You know, was this kind of robust kind of I wouldn't say progressive counter movement, but like a moderate <laughs> counter movement to fundamentalism and kind of like you kind of said off mic there, Jennifer. Um, uh, yeah, joining the social concern to the personal piety to the uh, emphasis on conversion. Um, Etc. You know, you know we, um, and this is Billy Graham. This is the other people, Carl Henry, and um, who was running the NAE when you were working there? Uh, Billy Melvin was the president at the time. Um, I don't know much about Billy Melvin. Yeah, it's not a familiar name. He didn't come to the mailroom that often. No, no, no. <laughs> but uh, in the same building was also World Relief, so they were partner organizations, and I did hear a lot of frightening things that were going on at World Relief, and so. Um, yeah. For whatever it's worth, I think, I believe our church, the BIC is a part of the National Association of Evangelicals, I believe. Probably. And I think Alan Robinson, our national director, like, sits on whatever, yeah. you know, bigger yeah. board they have or something. Yeah, so. Um. So I think from the very beginning, we sought out non-denominational um, churches and often those were rather large. Um, and, you know, to their credit, they had some amazing programming and phenomenal speakers and a really strong small group ministries um, because, you know, when you're in a large church body, to find your place of belonging is to be in a small group. 
um, and having the credential of being a Wheaton grad, it was an easy in to leadership um, and trust and saying, oh, sure, you can be a part. They're growing. They need mature Christians. And so uh, we felt somewhat vital. Um, and these churches also did have a concern for the cities that they were in and for racial justice um, in name. Um, and we wanted to be a part of that and supporting that as well. But I think there is also a degree to which we always felt a bit marginal at times within these churches. And uh, I do recall after when working at NAE, um, I started getting acquainted with literature from uh, people associated with the Mennonite church, and I was looking at issues related to um, peace and issues related to war and violence, and uh, after reading through a lot of material that I hadn't been acquainted with before, I decided to write my conscientious objector statement and submit it to the uh, Mennonite Central Committee long before I knew much about Mennonites, and I had no idea that I was already thinking like an Anabaptist. Yeah. And what year was this that you filed? That was in 1983. 83 is when I graduated, and it was that year 83 into 84 when I was working on those documents. Okay. Yeah, a little bit amazing that we've had, you know, Mennonite hearts for 40 years, but didn't attend a church until... Just recently. Yeah. So, um, as Bob said, we were on the margins, but unlike most, we had many friends who would whine and complain, like, oh, they don't get it. You know, it's so frustrating. We never really went there and felt that. We were like, of course they don't get it. They didn't, you know, weren't raised with this. They haven't lived abroad. They haven't read the people we've read. Um, and, and, you know, the kingdom of God is upside down and backwards. And, and a lot of this church is new believers who are, have a secular mindset. So we were comfortable with being on the margins and being part of the change and not complaining that people didn't get it. Yeah. Um, I think we had, both of us had different life experiences than many people in the churches we were at. And uh, Jennifer, her whole upbringing living abroad, exposed her to things that uh, most people aren't thinking about. When I was a college student, I did an internship for six months in the Amazon, uh, where I was by myself immersed within a population. That was something that made me think differently and experience things differently. But then my first job after my master's of public health, I was hired by a major African-American denomination, the AME Zion Church. I think I was, I've been told that I was the first white person hired at the, by that denomination in history. Um, and it was quite an experience for me to be day in, day out, engaged with African-American Christians who really were evangelical, but would never use that term because they didn't belong to that club. But uh, they were evangelical in much of the ways that they thought and in their theology. Because by the 80s, I mean, evangelical had had firmly become a, a voting block. That's right. Uh, and a cultural, a specific cultural subset. We were out of, we were not anymore talking about 
the fundamentalist, you know, evangelical divide or, or Bebbington's quadrilateral or anything like that. Um, I shouldn't just drop that, but you know, Bebbington's quadrilateral is a way we define evangelicalism as a, uh, as a theological orientation focused on, um, focus on uh, the cross of Christ, on conversion, on social concern, and on a fourth, uh, the authority of scripture. Uh, I think those are the four. Yeah. Um, then along comes Jerry Falwell and right. the moral majority. 70s and, and then the 80s. By then, you know, by the time Reagan becomes president, evangelicalism is officially not a theological term anymore, necessarily. Yeah. Well, and there were changes even within the evangelical church of like, Back then, a real strong, seeker-sensitive service orientation that over time, the research would show that people would mature and, and grow much better being part of a diverse and more mature uh, congregation than staying separate in a minimal involvement uh, and participation with low lights. They didn't grow. They didn't move on to the other service. And so the, they had to rethink things and drop some of that focus. Um, and, and you know, same with like racial reconciliation, you'd have, you know, I call it racial reconciliation 101. And like, I've done it a dozen times at a dozen different places, but it never goes on to the upper level courses. <laughs> and you get tired of like, oh, okay, you're just getting a glimpse, you know? Yeah, and I mean, a lot of those evangelical churches were, I mean, you have the homogeneous unit principle that's organizing a lot of them, right? Like, this was stated explicitly by the Heibelses of the world and Rick Warrens of the world. Like, look, if you want this explosive uh, exponential growth numerically, actually, like... like an organization. Yeah, and, and, and these, these social organizations grow um, more quickly... And, and more easily when everyone is generally the same. So you're supposed to draw on a napkin, your target audience, focus your ministries on achieving that specific audience and like kind of baptized the idea that, no, oh, it's okay if <laughs> we're all the same. That's how we get to 4,000, 5,000, 20,000 people in this church, right? Right. Um, kind of the internal logic of the megachurch movement kind of ran counter to uh, fostering diversity right and definitely the church that we settled into in baltimore was based upon that model in fact our our pastor who was an incredible teacher uh, was uh, stolen away by willow creek to be their um, main teaching pastor in addition to hybels for, for the, the stronger believers the the more committed community he was their pastor, not the seeker-sensitive services on Sunday morning, um, but on Wednesday nights instead. And then we also saw the influence of not having women in leadership um, in, as elders or preachers, um, that that allowed toxic masculinity to grow um, in, a, in a profoundly disturbing way, and Bob will share a little on that. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, my some of my research interests and compassion started developing around issues of masculinity, um, especially in the context of the African-American community, where I had been working ever since I was hired by the AME Zion Church. And uh, 
in Baltimore, I was introduced to men who were struggling to become better men and fathers and uh, was highly impacted by them. And so it started me down a road of looking at issues of masculinity. So in the context of my churches, I thought, okay, they have these men's groups, Promise Keepers is going on, I have this academic interest, let me check it out. But it was a bit much for me to tolerate. We're gonna watch uh, Mel Gibson movies. Yeah. And we're gonna Yes, uh, biblical masculinity can be summed up we're by gonna brave smoke hearts. cigars yeah. and we're gonna talk about being warriors while we women were supposed to desire to be princesses and considered lovely. Um, and this just again also interfaced with our our understanding of marriage and, and more egalitarian roles for Bob and I, although you know we looked very complementarian during the child rearing years. I stayed home, um, and he, you know, earned the money. the The effects were widespread um, on. Yeah, our thinking definitely was, was egalitarian, yeah. and uh, the roles that we often took were opposite of traditional roles. And, you know, I was the nurturer with the kids and would be their nurse to take care of them when they were hurt or injured. But uh, And Jennifer had a different role. So it was kind of interesting that we took kind of the opposite role we were told to. Yeah, and not to say that, you know, ours was the right way, but just that it was an option. Bob had some more um, feminine qualities and I had some more masculine qualities. Um, but, you know, still fully feeling man and woman <laughs> in this equation. You know, this last couple of years, it was quite intriguing and interesting and, a, and haunting to read the book Jesus and John Wayne because I saw all of that unfold. Uh, quite an interesting book if you haven't read it. I have. Yeah, I have. And I, that would be my... Yeah, it's at the top of my list of books that I would recommend to people to read. Uh, growing up in evangelicalism for most of my life, uh, and I hadn't really thought of, you know, put put language to so many things that I hadn't really even considered or thought about the way to which um, this, you know, kind of through line and strain of, of masculinity and how it affected, you know, how it makes sense of evangelicalism. Um, that was a big one for me, you know, kind of, and it, yeah, I guess I'll tip my show my cards here a little bit, but uh, being perplexed in 2016 to see like evangelicals kind of um, pretty unabashedly like embrace um, supporting Trump as a, as a political candidate. Oh, we're not even there yet. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but just to say like, I, I, I puzzled for, you know, for the, his entire term, like, man, that, that really came out of nowhere. Uh, by the time I finished reading Jesus Gently, I was like, oh, no, actually, that's exactly, okay, that's that's the culmination. That's like, of course that happened, you know, uh -huh. because of yeah. the way that um, we were set up to embrace a strong man and embrace this particular vision of what our country needed in terms of we need we need Braveheart, you know, we need William Wallace to come in and, and you know. And there it. might have been some some discussion tables of, the role of women in church, but it wasn't open to the public. It wasn't, you know, it's like, and, and we never saw anything come out of it as in terms of like a statement or change. Um, and I, I just always ask the question, 
I, I don't understand how God would have us be one thing on a Sunday and a different thing the rest of the week. Like if you're allowed to work in the workplace and be over men, why would that not be the same on Sunday? Like we have to be consistent because God doesn't ask us to be two different people. So just, you know, there's a gap here. And then um, there's, there's a very, we, we started to see fear um, and, and not wanting to address hot topics like divorce or homosexuality or domestic violence um, because that could lead to loss of people or division. Um, and so if we're going to talk about it all, we're going to let a guest speaker do that and then just say, well, he said it, I didn't. Um, and yeah, in terms of discussions about race, uh, people were very willing to talk about race as an issue of personal prejudice, interpersonal relations, and that we need to love one another, but not willing to think of systemic issues that go to the heart of why uh, there is inequality within our society. And then a 9-11 happened. And that felt like a step back too because that's when we really saw Christian nationalism rear up in the church. And we attended a Sunday school class where we were literally told that we should purchase a firearm. And I was shocked. And there was this fear of Muslims. Um, did they, they use that uh, Jesus telling them to go find a sword? Yeah, you know, kind of. Before the and, 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 <laughs> going to Gethsemane. And, and just, you know, this this. Fear um, and and a thirst for revenge, and it just um, and and on you know July Fourth, you would always get a sermon where you sung hymns to the Republic. Um, that's just struck us as don't, don't we want to keep church and state separate? That's the way we were built to, and probably the best way for it to flourish. But we saw grabs for power coming into play. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, when my son came home and said in Sunday school that they had to stand up and do the Pledge of Allegiance. I, uh, I wrote a treatise to the pastor and I sent him a copy of an article from an old Christian magazine called The Other Side. And it was on patriotism in the church. I think it was written in 1981 or something like that. And um, But I held on to that because I thought, you know, this is a powerful threat to the, the ministry of the church. And, uh, and then I just saw it unfolding in, before our eyes and the churches we were tithing to. I wish you had nailed that letter to the front door of the church, like Martin Luther. That would have <laughs> <Yes>. been. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we were actually more f afraid of our children hanging out with the kids from church than who they chose as friends from school, um, because frankly, they were pretty messed up kids with a lot of very successful but burdened. Uh, parents um, and our kids were like the most well-adjusted reasonable thinkers of the bunch and you just prayed that it would go well 
Yeah, uh, so this is a time when you hear people now talking about the, the injury caused from the church. And so that whole generation of kids had gone through injury from the church. And luckily our kids had us to process these things with every day. But uh, for, for many people, this, they didn't talk about them. And you know now I'm seeing college students still who uh, will not profess faith because of those experiences they had. Yeah, that's the heartbreaking thing for me, and it's just a, it's a witness concern as much as anything, you know. This, um, which I've found a home in, in a baptism as well, partly because of just the, uh, for centuries we've we've paid careful attention to our corporate witness, and that idea that like what we're putting, what we're putting forth as a local body and as a, a general, you know, cr- church Catholic. <laughs> Uh, matters greatly in terms of, you know, um, they'll know you're Christians by your love. Uh, you know, no one has ever seen God, but when you love one another, like God's made complete, you know, his love is made complete and perfect in you. Like they'll see and they'll recognize that. It's always been the case that um, Anabaptists, you know, have wanted to live live beyond reproach in the eyes of, of the world, you know, and lead uh, what Michael Frost calls questionable lives where people are, are, are meant, you know, respond by thinking, man, what is, what is going on here? Those people are different. And obviously we then deal with legalism and deal with the fact that we can't lead perfect lives in the sight of the world. And so we are exhibiting grace hopefully as well, but that's just remain important. And I, so my heart breaks and I'm unsurprised when as a result of some of what they witnessed from us, they have a hard time, you know, embracing faith. Yeah. Uh, back when I was at Taylor, somebody brought this up, that no matter what room I'm in, that's me, um, I might be the most liberal or progressive person, but I'm also the least worldly, which is really quite interesting. And I would say a compliment. I think undergirding us through this whole time of being in the evangelical church was also our connection to uh, the Christian Community Development Association and its focus and its conferences and its writing. Um, And you can tell them a little more about what that was about. Um, But I think that helped us stay focused when we weren't always necessarily hearing this from the pulpit. Yeah, for those that don't know, the Christian Community Development Association was formed, I think it was like in 1989. Uh, Early on, we knew people involved in that. Uh, In fact, um, we were supporting one of my roommates from college who was working at Lawndale Church doing community development work. And it was Lawndale, along with John Perkins from Voice of Calvary Miss, uh, uh, Ministries yeah, in Mississippi. It. Yeah, we also had been supporting them. They were the ones that really pulled together a group to think about, okay, how can we have a witness here in the city? How can we impact these neighborhoods and make the church a foundational part of that? And so John Perkins had his three R's at the time, relocation, move in to where the people are. Uh, uh, redistribution, make sure that there is a just uh, distribution of resources within communities and reconciliation, that this has to go beyond tolerance to really 
creating uh, the kind of community that is a foretaste of things to come, what we hope to see as uh, described in the book of Revelations where people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are together worshiping. So then I think our journey traveled a little further um, to where um, Bob left um, teaching at secular uh, universities um, to an evangelical small Christian college setting where, uh, you know, the goal is to integrate faith and learning. Um, and Bob had some concern entering that. Um, he often used to say, I, I think I'm more scared of evangelical men <laughs> than any other group. Um, uh, but he took it on with gusto and loved his job and uh, had an impact on students. But we saw some disturbing things. Yeah. Uh, there were all kinds of things going on uh, at the Christian college where I was working. And uh, anything that would be hitting the news like, okay, the take a knee movement, okay. Students wanted faculty to come together and talk about take a knee movement, and so they put together a panel. Uh, I was there, one of their selections, and person who had polar opposite views was another person on that panel. Is this like when Colin Kaepernick and NFL players were taking a knee during the National Anthem? Okay, gotcha. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, uh, and students were saying, how can we signal to society that this is not acceptable to have uh, the kinds of treatment that black people are experiencing at the hands of law enforcement, or not just there, but in uh, every institution in society. And here was somebody brave enough to risk his career to make a very bold public statement that, hey, I am object objecting to this in the most humble, submissive posture, I can imagine, is bowing before God. And then when a group of students wanted to emulate that at a game, uh, they made sure that the cameras were not allowed to film that or bring any recognition to that. Same with the uh, when students desired to do a Black Lives Matter, um, sort of walk and you know then well we can't call it that and you can't wear black and you can't you know and it just gets lost in translation and it's frustrating for students as they want to ask questions and explore difficult topics but feel constrained that that is is inappropriate or wrong to do so you were in the, in the ring fighting in some ways, or at least being put out there as a, an advocate for a certain side that I imagine was uh, difficult. Yeah, uh, one, you know, I had been on my own journey related to issues of race and privilege, and it took a long time. I'm talking about at least a decade before me for for me to first start to grapple with the issue of my own whiteness and my own privilege, and what do you do with that? People get frozen in a state of guilt, or, or then they want to just hide that. But there's that's not where things should end. And what I began to realize is that uh, in every institution that I belong in, there are 
people who are granted undue privileges and others that are undue um, discrimination. And how can I make sure that those things are uncovered and talked about? So I was on some of the core committees, faculties, equivalent of a faculty senate, as well as faculty personnel committee where decisions are made about promotion and tenure. And, All the, and the committee nobody wanted to be on because it involved the most reading and work. But he would choose to do it because? Because this is where our core values are demonstrated uh, by the way we make decisions. And um, it's where people are given undue privilege and others are discriminated against. And so identifying and highlighting and putting a name to things was something that I did, which didn't necessarily make me uh, beloved uh, among people, although I think I had the, uh, uh, the, the provost, even if I had disagreed with him, had a great deal of respect that I was being really authentic and had a great deal of integrity. And I saw Bob also, um, you know, it wasn't by choice that he was born male or born white. Um, but it is our choice of how we can use that identity for the kingdom instead of just feeling guilty that you are what you are. And so his, you know, addressing of women being left out of the boys club um, for no good reason or, um, I'm blanking. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm worried that this is focusing too much on me because Jennifer was a vital part of this throughout our lives together. And, uh, um, we embraced living in Baltimore. We were in Baltimore for nine years and uh, fully embraced living in the city and being incarnational in our ministry. Choosing public schools over homeschooling, um, choosing to give to organizations that others wouldn't have chosen to give to. And saying difficult things in women's Bible studies. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't even get invited to those anymore, so I get it. <laughs> I but at all of those, I think there was a strong, uh, the continued desire to be a part of the change and not to, you know, dust off our feet and walk away and say, we're better than you. We get it. You don't. Um, but to, again, to, like the... the president would come to Bob and say, well, you have so much experience at working in the African-American community. We'd love to learn from you how to increase our diversity at this college. And yet you knew already that what that would take would be for the, for the majority to change, to be more accommodating to those individuals when what they really wanted was them to attend, but to assimilate to be more like them. Um, and that's always a challenging place to be in because they, they desire the right things but not have the motivation um, to, get, to do the change that it involves to get there. Yeah. So 
thank you so much for laying out that. I mean, as you kind of, you're getting almost to the present and to the, the present day in terms of this journey. Um, where, how do, how do you feel now? You're not necessarily in a place that's explicitly evangelical. Um, you've taken some lumps. You, you stayed in the fight for a good portion of time. And, and now maybe you're in, you've, you've finally arrived at, your, <laughs> at Anabaptism yeah. and at a tradition yeah. where you feel and, more in and line. And I don't want to imply that no good was had. Oh, no, uh, of course we, not. We knew many a good believer and learned a lot um, from the teaching that we, and had great opportunities to serve. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately it was more like we were pushed out, not that we left, but that, you know, they didn't want what we had to offer. And so you, you have your integrity and you take it somewhere else. And it's been lovely to have HBIC as a new kind of home for us that it can be a little progressive in its social and political thinking while still conservative theologically. And uh, that they take the body of believers very seriously and the use of women's gifts and, and Jesus' words and simple lifestyle and social justice. And, and it's, um, I don't see toxic masculinity anywhere in our body, uh, which is a very beautiful thing. And no fear from the pulpit to circumvent hot topics or speak uh, the truth of our communal failings. Uh, so... You know, is there room for improvement? Always. You know, have we mastered diversity and multi-class multi unity? No. Um, but there's a commitment to carrying on that conversation of addressing um, racial justice beyond the one-on-one -on -one class. And so uh, we're happy and delighted to be a part of that because it's a, always going to be a bit messy. Yet I still lament what's happening in what is promoted as the evangelical movement. Uh, as a social movement, I see it's failing. And when I think of where will we find leadership in movement towards the principles of the kingdom of God, I think I'm going to look more and more for leadership from Africa, Asia, Latin America, than from um, white evangelicals. Yeah, for sure. And that's um, we we enjoy a um, array of different types of diversity in this congregation, but certainly one of those is you know the amount of international folks and and and, and immigrant folks that are a part of the church, um, and so we have a direct opportunity to be able to learn and grow alongside the global church in a certain way, you know. And I was staggered when I realized all the flags ringing our sanctuary were not just we didn't just buy the like bulk flag special mm -hmm. on Amazon, right? That these are all uh, places where people that, you know, we're connected with or that are worshiping with us on a Sunday, like are hailing from um, representing that. Um, that's huge. A and and on that point, you know, beyond American white evangelicals, there are billions of evangelicals globally. Um, you know, and I've done my share of hand-wringing and thinking through, should we even bother with that word anymore? Because it's just it's changed so much what it what it means in, in, in America and yet you know globally <laughs> that word still means a lot and I mean that it's we're centuries into the evangelical movement not just even in our conversation about how evangelicalism was a 
a, res- a response in the 40s and 50s to fundamentalism was like, well, no, evangelicalism is, you know, goes back to the 1700s and 1800s. And um, so making our peace with, yeah, I agree with you, uh, with aspects of your story, or I, I resonate with aspects of your story because I also came through that and fought some of those fights. And for the rest of my life, you know, I, evangelicalism is is part of who I am. Those are my people in a certain way, right? Um, you don't necessarily get to choose your your people. And I, I respect and I admire the, the fidelity to, you know, try and just be the dissonant person in the room at times, not dissident, but dissonant, you know, just right. voicing something that's going to, you know, not always be well received. Um, and maybe this is just a time of healing for us and right. we return to the fight. Who knows? Right. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so. <laughs> don't, don't rush. No. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I feel like this is a place of healing both here as well as uh, Elizabethtown College. It's been a place of healing for me too. So glad to share that journey with you guys. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much.